0: That monumental day in Eden when man fell and when he was graphically acquainted with his accountability and the consequence of his action, still even in that day, there was hope because on that day, not only was the sin that man had committed brought before his consciousness, and not only was his accountability done in the same way, but also man was acquainted in that day and introduced to the concept of redemption. Lutrao, it is in the Greek, it literally means to purchase or to buy something back again. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, scholars call what is said by the Lord in that verse the Proto-Evangelium, the words are these, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, the Lord speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. The word enmity here is the Hebrew word abah. It literally means deep-rooted hatred. There was to be a diverse, completely separated difference between the seed of the serpent and the seed of God. It was the seed of God who would seek to undo and would undo through his vicarious life and death for us, what the serpent had done on this day. And so it is powerful when the scripture says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. When we read in Romans chapter 3, Usually our focus is verse 23. But there are two other verses that follow that speak to the hope of this situation that we're talking about from the garden and what has unfolded since that day. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is, in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Paul put it this way, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse For us, Galatians 3 and verse 13. Every single one of us in this room has gone down the path that Adam and his wife went down. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for our sin today is the same one that God expressed to Adam in Genesis chapter chapter 2. Where he said, if you eat of this tree, this one tree, you shall surely die. In other words, according to what James says, there would be separation between you and God. And so when those words are spoken in Genesis 3.15, this promise of a Savior, this promise of redemption, they are glorious words. It is it is a wonderful promise. And yet, in the wisdom of God, he understood that promise would take quite a while to come to its fruition. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote, In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under or were under the law. God waited just as He waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. He waited as time unfolded and as He worked through time to bring the world to a point where Jesus could come and where it would be the fulfilling of God's will for Him to come in the fullness of the time to bring about the fruition of the promise that happened way back in Genesis 3.15. If you've ever been to a concert, you've probably noticed that they have a warm-up act and then they have the main attraction. And in between, you have a bunch of roadies running around like roaches. And I don't mean that in a demeaning fashion. But they're running around getting equipment off the stage and putting other equipment on the stage. And they're getting that stage ready for the main act. As we see the unfolding of all of the events following Genesis 3.15 the time that Jesus comes, what we're seeing is God getting the world ready for its redemption. And during those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, so many things happened. The establishment, the prominence of the synagogue, the Old Testament being translated into Greek, which the world was speaking at that time. So many things transpired so that when Jesus came, The world, as far as the timing was concerned, was ready. But you see, this wasn't something that God just decided as a knee-jerk kind of reaction to what happened in Genesis 3. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, the Bible is very clear in pointing out for us that the plan to redeem man by the way that Jesus would do it and in the person of Jesus was established before the foundation of the world. God knew what He was going to do, as we talked about this morning in Psalm 139, before man even acted in the ways that would bring about the need for what God fulfilled in Christ. Every single one of us needs redemption. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, the Bible says, Paul says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 45, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Sometimes we think about biblical concepts like redemption and propitiation and all of these $5 words that sometimes come at us from the pulpit. When really there is a simple and yet powerful and profound background to that. And that is the idea, the reality, that God Himself established in Eden that every act has a price. Everything we do in life, everything we say has a consequence. It has a price that has to be paid, especially if it is a transgression of the law of God and His will for us. And so God set about bringing to fruition the process of redemption. And in doing that, God accomplished it in ways that you and I probably would not have. I'm not going to do the slides tonight. I'll leave the slide that's up there, up there because it's profound. And we'll talk about one application of it in just a second. But in thinking about how God accomplished what he did in Jesus. Before we go into the process of looking at that, I do want to make mention of just one thing as an aside. Some of us learn about redemption or did learn about redemption before we ever got to a Bible class or outside of a Bible class or hearing it in a sermon. And it, that learning came in the form of something called SNH green stamps. Some of you may remember those. You date yourself if you do, but some of you may remember those. I remember them because my mother would go to the grocery store, and she would buy a certain number of groceries, and they would give as a bonus sheets of these S&H green stamps and books to glue them into. And she would bring them home, and when she brought them home, guess who had to lick the back of the stamp to get it in the book? That was my job and my sister's job. And that glue, let me tell you, was nasty. It would be the best thing in this world to put someone on a diet. You would not want to eat anything once you got that mess on your tongue. But we would paste and, and stick and paste and stick and collect, and collect and collect and collect and collect. And finally, finally the day came when we would go to the place called the Redemption Center. And when we went in the Redemption Center, it was almost like for for a child dying and going to glory, because as the next slide will show you, the things on the wall and these look like terrible things, antiques now, just hopeless antiques, but back in the day, it was a treasure trove, and all of a sudden you you were brought to an understanding of the value of redemption. And what it meant for all of that work and all of that effort to come to its fruition and you getting one of these toys to take home. Number one, when God started the process of redemption in the New Testament, the Bible tells us what he did. And the first thing he did was give us a baby. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 23, the birth of his son. God didn't send someone full grown. He could have. God didn't send a whole legion of angels. He could have. He sent us a baby. And as that baby was announced, particularly in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2, he was announced as someone who would bring good tidings of great joy. To all people, Luke 2 and verse 10. To those shepherds who were living out in the fields, they were told in Luke 2 and verse 12, if you go to this particular place, you will find a baby in a feed trough. And surely they did. And he was to be the one who would redeem Israel of its sins. And later... When his mother had finished her time of purification and they came to Jerusalem to present Jesus. The Bible says in Luke 2 and verse 36, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. This woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him, to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. Now you think about it, folks. If we were sending someone to purchase redemption for someone's sins, it's doubtful that we would go through the whole gestation process and, and the process of growth and maturation through adolescence and all of the other things to get that person to adulthood. But God in His wisdom gave us a baby. He gave the world a child that was pure, that was born of woman, yes, but also involved the Holy Spirit of God in the process of getting Jesus born, getting Him conceived and born. That's why He is the Monogenes, John 3, 16, the one who is 100% human and 100% divine. And this is really in keeping, if you will, with what Isaiah says about God, in terms of the way God does things. Isaiah 55, 7-9. through 9, Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God. And he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The idea here is in the context that God behaves Himself differently than we do. He thinks differently and He behaves differently. And and you take that back to the context. It, It has to do with pardon. It has to do with redemption. It has to do with forgiveness. And basically, Isaiah is implying this. Human beings won't always forgive you. Sometimes you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get human beings to say, I forgive you, I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. But Isaiah says, with God, it's not so. He will abundantly pardon. He wants to forgive. He does not want the penalty for our sin to follow us through eternity. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repent at 2 Peter 3.9. And so in such a beautiful way, he gave us a baby. And unlike the, the process when we bring a baby home from the hospital, we start paying for it. This baby paid for us. He paid for us. He purchased our sins by his coming and the things that he would do. Second of all, in his wisdom, God not only gave us a baby, he gave us a brother. He gave us someone who would live the life that we live, someone who would understand what it is to be human as we are. Let's look at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 32. Mark chapter 3, I actually begin reading in verse 31. Then his brothers, his biological brothers, and his biological mother came. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling to him, or calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother Or my brothers. And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus came to be our elder brother in the faith. And it's such a beautiful fulfillment of this process of redemption. Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I'll sing praise to you. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And how beautiful it is. We do not have a high priest, so the Hebrews writer says, chapter four, verse 15, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. This baby grew up to be a man. He grew up to be an adult. He grew up to walk the same path of life that we walk. He grew up to to have the same struggles and temptations and feelings and emotions and hungerings in His body and maybe even thoughts in His mind, though they were not sinful. He became our brother. And this brotherhood that we often refer to, the Lord's church... It's not just an empty fraternity where you get a t-shirt to wear and you got a secret handshake or something else. It is a precious, precious fraternity established by our elder brother, the Son of God, the Monogenes, the one who purchased our sins, the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the one who can stand before our Father in heaven and be our mediator, understanding fully what it is to live in this place and have the challenges that we have on a daily basis. Stories told about two younger brothers playing along the Chattahoochee River down where I live in Georgia a river that often gets out of its banks or it used to. And when it would, there would be sandbars and sand mounds that would accumulate. And they would become sand pits as the water came over the banks and washed them around. And those sand pits would be very deep and very wide and very treacherous. Stories told of two brothers who were out there playing in one of those sand pits and it collapsed on them. Hours passed by and people looked for them. They couldn't find them anywhere. They didn't know where they were. And finally, somebody suggested, let's check the river. They often go there to play. And sure enough, they went to the sand pits. And what they saw was so heartbreaking. The younger of the two brothers, the smaller, the weaker of the two brothers, they could barely see the top of his head above one of the sand pits that had caved in. And 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 he was unconscious. And they started digging through the sand and digging through the sand. And finally they got him to a point where they could pull him out. And before they pulled him out, they got him revived, resuscitated. And they asked him, of course, the question that anyone would ask, Where is your older brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. Because he was the only one of us two who could rescue the other one. Tonight, spiritually, we stand on the shoulders of our older brother, Jesus of Nazareth. He took our punishment. He took the sentence. And in living this life and overcoming this life and becoming the vehicle for our redemption, He is in every way our spiritual brother. Number three, God in His wisdom supplied for us the blood The blood. In John chapter 6, we begin reading in verse 53. John chapter 6 and verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus isn't here endorsing the idea of literal cannibalism as the charge came from the ancient Romans against our ancestors in the faith. But what he's saying is, for you and I to be His brethren, for you and I to be redeemed by His blood, we have to take discipleship, lock, stock, and barrel, or as my father used to say, whole hog or none. And that means that the blood becomes the serum for us to have our sins washed away. And again going back to 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 we are not redeemed by corruptible things but by incorruptible things the precious blood of Christ that's the price for our sin if you want to put a price tag on sin if you want to see the mannequin in a store that says this is sin look on the toe look on the finger look somewhere on the mannequin and find the price tag and the bible will tell you what it is it is the blood Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews chapter 9 says, there is no remission. There is no redemption. There is no sending away of the sin. The Bible tells us in Psalm 103 and verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. God could take our sins completely away from us because of the power of what was shed for us on that cross of Calvary. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And then verse 14, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory? Jesus has already purchased us. He purchased us on Calvary, purchased our sins on Calvary. And one day when He comes to redeem us and take us home to our Father in heaven, when He delivers that kingdom up to Him, that's when the redemption process, if you will, will be totality. That's when it will be completed for all time. When we are in the presence of our Father in heaven because of the blood Ephesians 2:13 but now in Christ Jesus you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation Romans again Romans 3:25 that means a substitute that means an appeasement a conciliation that God allowed Jesus that his plan included with intention what Jesus would have to do On Calvary. And so when we think of the blood, we think of the precious price that our sins cost the Lord. The Bible says that He tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2 verse 9. Separation from God for the first time in all eternity. But part of that had to do with the shedding of Of his innocent blood. If you don't remember anything else tonight. Please remember this statement in a spiritual sense. And you see it. You go back through Hebrews 9 and read. In a spiritual figurative sense. When Jesus died on the cross. Of Calvary. God. In a spiritual sense. Took the blood of God. Into the presence of God just as the Old Testament high priest had done in the Holy of Holies with the blood of bulls and goats. But at this time, God. God took the very blood of God. His own blood. He's all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. God took the very blood of God into the presence of God the Father and offered it for us. That's the reason it only had to be done one time. And He's the only one who could have done it. You see how precarious our situation was, but is no more. We were dependent upon Him. Every day that He lived and resisted the devil and his temptations, every day that He lived that sinless life that Hebrews 4 talks about, He became that perfect sinless sacrifice. And He learned obedience, the Bible says, by the things that He suffered. And He hung on Calvary. He endured the scourging and the spikes in His wrists and His feet, and He gave His blood freely to pay the price. I was out in Texas not long ago preaching for a congregation, and we talked about this doctrine, the blood that purchases our redemption, and the love, the love of God that caused Jesus to shed that blood. His knowledge, His understanding that He was the only one who could do that for us. And I had one of the elders to come up to me, and I don't mean to demean this congregation. I love these brethren as I love Lehman Avenue. But he came up to me and he said, I want to tell you that we don't need no soft, sissy boy preaching around here like you did tonight. I didn't know what to say. I said, would you please repeat that? He said, sure. We don't need no soft sissy boy preaching about love, 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 love. Brethren, if there's anything soft and sissy boy about that image on the screen behind me, I surely don't know what it is. There is no one else who would have, and there was no one else who could have shed this kind of blood for your sin and for mine. Fourthly and finally tonight, in this process of redemption, God not only gave us a baby, He not only gave us a brother, He not only gave us this precious blood, He gave us the body, the body of our Lord Jesus. Looking forward to a time, as we'll talk about tomorrow night, that place of refuge, which is also called the, the body, the church. But in giving His body for us, again, as we often talk about, as this living sacrifice that Romans 12, 1 and 2 says we're supposed to be, God gave us a precious gift that was part of the purchase process of our sins and the sentence that hung over the the head of mankind collectively. Isaiah 53, and it was mentioned this morning, and I'm so glad that it was. It's such a beautiful, beautiful passage. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. No physical beauty. Jesus was not a marvelous specimen of of humanity and masculinity and, and beauty in a man. Isaiah says there's really nothing about Him physically that would draw Him to us. Or us to Him. But here's where it starts. Here's the attraction He's despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Aren't you touched when you read about Gethsemane? Luke twenty two, forty four. And you see the sweat and his great drops of blood falling to the ground because he is in such agony over the separation that is about to come between him and his father. The book of Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 and 8, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience again by the things That he suffered. God gave us a body. The body of God, the Word, become God the Son, God the incarnate One. Who bore in His body the punishment, the scars, the lashes of the scourge. And the spikes of the crucifixion. And the pain and the suffering of the asphyxiation that took his life on the cross. What a precious thing indeed. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 and chapter 7 and verse 23, you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not our own property. The redemption price has been paid. Someone has already visited the redemption center. And He's coming back again to redeem those who wear His name. What a precious, beautiful, profound process that God put into place and brought to fruition in what happened to Jesus all throughout of his, li- his life and then of course at his death burial and then resurrection. So that when he could say and did say in John 19 and verse 30, it is finished. No one else had to do anything. There wasn't an addendum that came along later and, and someone who came along that said, okay, he didn't get it all done. We're going to, we're going to get this done in the end and, and kind of put the caboose on the train. Oh no. The day of redemption has taken place. At least in terms of the payment of the price. And that's the powerful thing that we can offer this world. This world tonight is lost in its sin. And outside of Christ and His sacrifice and the redemption that He offers for the sins of mankind, there is no hope. There is no plan B. There is no other chance. You can't be good enough. You you can't... Accumulate uh, enough points. My, my granddaughter, my seven-year-old granddaughter in school, she'll call me sometime and she'll say, she'll say, Papa, I got 21 points today. Well, what that means is she wants money. <laughs> I know what that means. Papa will give her money for every point. Papa's a sucker. But God isn't. He's just one who loves us more than any other being ever. His name was Joe Cox. I hope Joe's in heaven one day. I'd like to see him again. He was in sixth grade. Joe got in trouble every day. He relished it. He relished being called to the office. He relished the punishment that the teacher meted out on him when he got in trouble. Because evidently in his mind that made him a bit of a celebrity. Every single day in sixth grade, Joe Cox did something. And it usually appeared to be intentional. Only his heart and the Lord knows. But it usually appeared to be something that he didn't accidentally do. And in those days, teachers in public school could exercise corporal punishment. And so every day when Joe would get in trouble, the teacher would call him to the front of the classroom. I may have shared this story with you before. As a matter of fact, I think I probably have. She would call Joe to the front of the classroom and she would bend his wrist back, his hand, and expose his wrist. And she would take that ruler and give him five very passionate whacks with that ruler, that that 12-inch ruler on his wrist. His wrist became so red, blood red. And still every day he'd go back for more. Day after day after day after day. And finally the teacher broken-hearted over this young man, what he was doing to himself and, and, and the, the behavior he was exhibiting. Finally, one one day, he got in trouble one last time. Mrs. Ragsdale called him to the front of the classroom. And instead of taking the ruler to his wrist, well, this time when Joe went up there, he expected it, so he just he pushed his wrist. He didn't wait for her to pull his wrist out. But instead of exercising punishment she handed joe the ruler she didn't say a word she just handed him the ruler i'll never forget his eyes it was like his greatest dream his greatest fantasy had come true he took that ruler and he began to wail on that teacher's wrist i mean and he didn't stop at five And he just kept going and you could see him smiling and grinning like a possum from ear to ear until he happened to look up at Mrs. Ragsdale. Her lower lip was quivering and her eyes were filling with tears so much that they were already running down her cheek. Not because of the pain in her wrist, but because of the pain in her heart. At the heart and mind and attitude of this young man. As soon as he saw that, it registered what was happening. She was taking his punishment for him. He handed the ruler back to her and went back to his seat. And never again, never again was he a problem. He got it. Our Lord purchased our sins by taking our stripes in His precious body, by shedding His incomparable blood, in becoming our brother and knowing our struggles and being our intercessor and our mediator with God the Father, as He grew from the time He was born in this world to the time He gave up His Spirit, again saying those powerful words, It is finished. This is why we should have a heart and mind of, of urgency in sharing this same beautiful gospel with those who are lost. There is a world out here all around us that's going to take stripes one day. And the good news is it doesn't have to because that price has already been paid. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, we sing this invitation song to give you an opportunity to take advantage of redemption that has been purchased for you at such a high cost. And to know what it is to have your sins washed away. So that you can have the hope and the promise and, and, and the certainty. Not the arrogance or self-righteous, but the certainty of faith that, that you can have eternal life. Because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. If for some reason you've fallen away from Christ, you've been a Christian, but you're not living like it. Understand, you're worse off now than before you became a Christian. And it's like you're trampling underfoot the Son of God and cheapening the gravity of His sacrifice with every act. Oh, we beg you tonight to repent of that. Confess it to God. Ask Him to forgive you. What a precious thing God has done in His Son for us Let the power of that example and that sacrifice bring you to Him tonight if you need to come. While together we stand and sing.